What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the channel. Welcome back to another edition of the Ask Nick uh, Weekly Q&A. Today is September 18th, 2020, and uh, you're, what you're about to watch is the Q&A from that day, and uh, I hope you enjoy. Had a lot of great questions talking about being pandemic-proof, talking about a great musician named Brian Carter and what he's been up to uh, in New York, and we've been talking about a lot of other things. Music school, talking about gigs that don't pay enough and a lot of other things. So check the time codes down in the description if you want to, if you're watching on YouTube, uh, to see all of the questions that came in this week. And feel free to leave in the comments uh, your questions. We'll be happy to answer those in next week's video uh, as long as we can see them ahead of time. So drop them into the comments below. Make sure you're subscribed to the channel. If you aren't already, uh, go over there. Hit that little bell too if you're on YouTube. Otherwise, uh, enjoy the video. Please let us know what your questions are or what's unclear. We're happy to uh, go deeper into some of these in future episodes. So thanks for being here as always and uh, enjoy the Q&A. How do you work on Airstream with beginning players? Also, what up? Uh, what's up, Alton? Um, so a great way to work on Airstream is um, James Burton showed me this years ago was to take a little piece of paper, uh, maybe like a little square of paper. I'm just looking for something to rip off here. I can do this here. Um, see if I can demonstrate live and in person. So just like a little tiny piece of paper and um, putting it up against the wall and then trying to focus your airstream enough that you can keep it in one place against the wall. So it's not like blowing super hard. You're not like trying to go, you know, you're not trying to do anything like that. You're just trying to focus your air and keep that uh, paper against the wall with a natural breath, with a natural you know, blowing uh, to keep that piece of paper there, but that'll keep keep constant because as soon as it goes uh, willy nilly, or you lose it, it's gonna fall, right? So um, something like this. Let's see if I can even do it anymore. I haven't done it in so long, um, but this works pretty well as like a visual uh, element too. So let's see. So get re get really close if you can. As you can see, mine's like falling down. So mine, the airstream is kind of down. So I'm not doing it very well, but that's a, that's that's one way you can do it. Is just get a tiny little piece of paper and um, hold it against the wall. Again, it's really important with airstream. I think this is one man's opinion that um, we don't force the air, that we let it come out naturally. We think I like to think of air as a pendulum, right? So you pull it back and you let it go as soon as you bring it in. So pull it back, there's not a, right? Because people sometimes hold it in and then they like explode the air, um, which I can see that, you know, in certain like lead trumpet playing or lead trombone, I guess, in a certain kind of way, but you need to like explode a note, but like, um, I, I try to think about it, that pendulum, you know? So anyway, natural breath, hold the piece of paper against the wall. Uh, ask um, James Burton if you want more information on that. He was the one that showed me that a long time ago. Um, I haven't done it in a while, so now I have to like, um, yeah, oh, he's in the middle of a lesson. Nice, Alton. Uh, hopefully that's helpful. So try the paper thing. See if that helps. Hold, see if you can hold it against the wall and you can kind of see what direction that your airstream is going in. It's interesting. Uh, very nerdy, very trombone nerdy. Says, what is the most difficult intervals for horn players to perform? Uh, intervals of more than an octave, I would guess. I've been working on um, not tenths, but like, like uh, oh, my trombone's in the case in the other room. But like, um, I've been playing major scales, but like in tenths plus an octave, whatever that would be. Fifteen, wait, that's two octaves. 
So eight plus a third, I don't know, whatever that is. So not like an octave and a third, but two octaves and a third. So playing like a G, pedal G and then a B above the bass clef and then a pedal A and then a C above the bass clef and then faking the low B and a D above the bass clef, etc. like playing scales instead of like in tenths, but like an octave and a tenth. Yeah, an octave and a tenth, exactly. Uh, I don't know what the hardest ones are. The hardest ones are probably for each different person because everyone can hear different intervals differently. You know, certain intervals stick out in people's heads and certain intervals are easier for some people to play than others. Some, some lay really well on the horn. Fifths are really easy. So um, that's kind of a, a arbitrary question, really. But how many videos do you keep ready to go in order to have ready to go in order to keep consistent content distribution? Uh, Second, asking about content distribution. So it depends, but I try to have at least a week ahead. And so that depends on your content schedule. Um, ideally, I get way further ahead than that. Um, sometimes I'm a month ahead. It really varies, but I try to, whenever I record a video, I always record more than one so that I always have um, a couple, except when I'm doing live streams, because then I, I, you know, those are just one, right? I can't do two at once. But, um, Whenever I'm recording a video, more than one, um, I try to be a week ahead at least. So uh, I'm never working on this week's content this week. It, I'm always working on next week's content this week. Um, but I would always try to stay at least one ahead, and then I try to get as far ahead as possible. And you can always move things around. Usually I have a backlog of four to five, six videos on my YouTube that are just private. Um, and then I can kind of fill them in as I need as in terms of like what's happening and what life throws my way. But um, right now I don't. So uh, you caught me at an interesting time where I don't really have a big backlog right now. Uh, I've been I had a big backlog and then um, now I have a bunch of stuff recorded that needs to be edited that I haven't had time to edit. So that's where I'm at. I have a bunch of recorded things that need to be edited. So I've been kind of just barely keeping up with my own schedule, but that's because I tried to increase my schedule from once to twice to three times per week. So I'm trying to go three times a week on YouTube. I'm just starting to work on my lip trills. How do you recommend practicing them? So a lip trill to me is the same as any other flexibility exercise. Um, so I think about it in terms of the change of the vowel sound in your mouth. So that means that the trill is facilitated by the changing of the tongue inside of the mouth. I think of So that is what changes the note. So I would pick like one word that you can do in one position, you know, to start. Maybe or maybe next door positions like E flat to F, play E flat in third above the staff, and then F in fourth above the staff. So what I do is what I just did. I go eighth notes, triplets, and then sixteenths, and then faster if I can do it, or put the tempo faster. So Trevor's asking more tongue movement than lip movement. Yeah, it's not lip movement. For me at all because if you're doing that's too much changing for me here it's not it's not like a lip bend it's not like a lip flexibility I mean, like you're not doing a flexibility exercise it's something else i go and you can go way faster right but right and then you can it's kind of like because that's how you do a flexibility really anyway, especially large intervals, right? Ah, e, ah, e, ah, e, to go up, and e, ah, e, ah, ah, oh, ah, oh, right? So you change the vowel sound, you make, and that's 
controlling the focus of the air and focus the focus of that moment of change. So I have a video on YouTube that's about that, the moment of change. It's about flexibility, and that's one I highly recommend if you're working on flexibility. But for lip drills, that's how you do it. Slow, uh, controlled. you got to be able to control it. Slow. I would do it on my trombone, but it's out there in the other room. So. Can you introduce some jazz trombone players to follow and learn? Yeah, for sure, Ellie. Uh, that's a great question. There's two that are following that were here just a second ago. Chris Glassman, bass trombonist, Alton Senkelar, Andre Hayward. I just watched a video from him last week. He used to play with Jazz Lincoln Center Orchestra. Wycliffe Gordon, Elliot Mason, Chris Crenshaw, Vincent Gardner, Marshall Jilks, Ryan Keberly, uh, James Burton. We were talking about James. Um, those are some younger guys, Michael Dees as well. And then some of my teachers like Steve Davis, Steve Teray, Wycliffe Gordon. Um, and then the greats like Curtis Fuller, J.J. Johnson, Slide Hampton. There's about more than you could ever listen to in a week. So there you go. Can you talk developing your voice as an artist, balance as an artist versus musician? Sure. We've talked about this before on the streams. And so my thoughts about this topic are that you have to develop two things simultaneously, the artistry and the craftsmanship. So that's what I think when he, when he talks about musician, right? So being a musician means being able to sight read, play anything at any time, be flexible, play different styles, know different vocabulary, uh, do a pit orchestra gig, do a pop gig, do you know, that stuff. That's craftsmanship, like be the best at your instrument so you can work, do general business gigs, play anywhere, play with anyone. And so that is just like a skill that's like, um, being a great craftsman, being able to build somebody a house is different than like carving something out of wood, right? It's the same. You're, you're participating and so you're trying to get better. That means you're doing your technical exercises, you're good at playing in ensembles, you're good at sight reading, you're good at um, following a lead player. All of those type of things go into that idea of being a musician, knowing tunes, being reliable, showing up on time, writing the, wearing the right stuff to the gig, uh, be, you know, being cool, not being a jerk, all of these kind of things. Like Those fall under being a musician. And then you have to balance that with your own artistry because I don't think most of us, well, that's not true, really, because there's some people that that's what they want to do, 100%. But if you're also a person that wants to develop the artistic side, that's like a whole separate skill set. And I never thought about it when I was an undergrad at all. I didn't think about it till I was in grad school. And I never even thought about it as a thing. I just thought it was it would happen naturally. And I think it does happen naturally because you're naturally inclined towards certain music, towards certain players, towards certain sounds, towards certain types of songs, genres, all of that. Like you have your natural inclinations that will kind of lead you on your own path. So for me, um, it's one, just recognizing those as they come up. Like, oh yeah, I kind of like this. Starting to write music. Even if you don't want to perform your own music exclusively, writing your own music tells you what your preferences are. Um, take, it takes your influences and it tries to kind of combine them and, and write something that comes out uh, like a certain influence um, or learning the music of somebody that you really like, you know, so you can play with them. And so that's like the transition from trumpet player to getting called to be you, right? There's a difference between getting called for trumpet three or come and I want you to be in my band, right? That's, that's the difference that we're talking about. You have to develop it separately. You have to think about it separately. You have to allow yourself time to develop. That's why I always encourage people to start making their first record as soon as possible, thinking about what is it that they would present what is it if I had 
unlimited money, unlimited rehearsal time, what would I present to the world? Would it be a quintet? Would it be solo trombone? Would it be electronics and brass ensemble? I don't know, just whatever it happened to be and start to work on those things because like, it takes a long time to kind of realize like what is your voice um, what do you like and all that kind of stuff. But you, in terms of like developing your voice in particular, sometimes, you know, it's a little bit problematic of a thing to talk about, I guess. But I think you naturally have your own voice without having to try very much in terms of how you play. Like it's, it's a natural uh, outcropping of your person, your influences and all that. It kind of all comes out naturally. Like you don't have to really pick your, your sound. You can kind of aim it. You can kind of like focus it. You can kind of, you can think about eliminating other influences or focusing on your strengths and uh, you can focus it in on your strengths, your preferences, but it'll naturally come out. So just worrying about being the best you can as an artist, developing as an artist, writing music, improvising in your voice, just what comes to your ear when you play, you know, as opposed to an exercise where like, I'm gonna play just like Freddie Hubbard, I'm gonna play just like Roy Hargrove, I'm gonna play just like Kenny Dorham. That's like a academic exercise. And that's really good because then it takes all that and it pushes you through, pushes you through to decide what of that stuff is gonna translate over to you as an artist. You know, like what is the stuff that sticks with you? Is it the phrasing? Is it the articulation? Is it, you know, and you kind of decide, you know, I go through with my students, we talk about sound and sound concept in this way. We talk about articulation in this way, taking all of our influences, figuring out what's similar across them, and then like figuring out our own concepts. Like what is our concept? Are you going for like an Ambrose thing? Are you going for a Roy Hargrove thing? Are you going for a um, Lester Bowie thing? Something, you know, what are you going for? and figure that out and what your strengths are, double down on your strengths, fill in your weaknesses as much as possible, and uh, go from there. And what ways are you as a musician pandemic proof, in quotes, making money without gigs, in quotes. Um, so he's saying that to me, I guess, as a question. Uh, to answer, I was trying to say, like, in, trying to figure out if, if he meant in general or just for me. Um, I think a lot of my quote unquote pandemic proofness comes from of the educational side of things and then also the label you know i have a record label slash media company that's called outside in music and we do artist services meaning we do websites advertising promotion campaigns um consulting marketing uh marketing plans and execution of those plans all that different stuff goes into like one bucket of stuff that i do uh, and speaking and speaking to other people um, uh, so all that kind of goes in one bucket and then there's teaching like there's the teaching I do at the university and then there's the online teaching stuff that I do there's books that I create uh, I released a, a language book this year and a warm-up book and well I guess that was last year and a etude book so there's two two books that came out and um, so all of that stuff together kind of comprises a lot of it but then there's a good chunk that just comes from just comes from playing gigs that definitely has disappeared. So um, I'm with you. So I don't know if I'm pandemic proof either. Uh, I definitely don't think I'm pandemic proof. Uh, it's hit me pretty hard just like anyone else. Um, so that, those are things that I think I've thought about from the beginning though, making sure I can't rely on any one thing because you never know when something's gonna disappear. You know, like, I mean, yes, I have a, I'm fortunate to have a great job at a great university, however, it's like, I don't know, maybe they'll decide randomly they're gonna get rid of the School of Music. I don't think so, but you know, anything could happen. 
this year is a good example of that. So I've always been prepared by trying to have teaching chops together, business chops together, and also uh, marketing and also social media. And also, you know, I've just always tried to keep my eyes open to many different possibilities so that when something happens, I'm prepared to kind of adjust and switch and take a different route. So that's kind of been my approach to it. So I hope that that helps Luke and I hope that you can um, develop some of that stuff on your own. What's your opinion on Patreon? Do you think it's a viable platform to generate some income even if it, you aren't already a big name? Yes, there's no need to think you need to be a big name in order to make money from an audience. I've talked about this before. There's an article by Kevin Kelly from Wired Magazine called 1000 True Fans. You don't need to be a big name. You need to create a value for the people that follow you. So if you can get 10 bucks, a year from a thousand people, you know, you're that's ten thousand bucks. If you can get a hundred bucks from ten thousand people or a thousand, sorry, ten bucks from a thousand is ten thousand. Ten bucks from a hundred bucks from ten thousand. I'm getting like real mixed up with my numbers, but ten bucks from a thousand people that's a hundred thousand dollars, which is a real career, and you can make a life with that. So, you don't need to have um, a big audience, but you do need to definitely have value that you can bring to the audience. So, um, whether that and just know how big the size of the audience is. A jazz trombone focused audience is not that big compared to somebody on Patreon that's doing um, content around photography or videography or something like that. So uh, just know your, the market size, Matt, and uh, that should kind of give you an idea of what, what you can do. You know, people, and keep in mind, on Patreon, people are doing one buck a month, five bucks a month, something small to keep those things going. So if you gotta kind of do the math and the numbers, but you don't need a lot, right? So if you needed like, say, $5,000 a month to um, make your make your expenses or whatever, and you had a $10 level, you that's, you know, 500 people at 10 bucks, right? So that's $5,000. So, you know, if that's one person uh, per day, then you got a year and a half and you can get uh, uh, 500 people on your Patreon. We got to think, the thing is that we usually don't think long-term enough and, uh, small enough like micro bits enough like yeah it might move faster than than that but if you need 500 people to give you 10 bucks a month you need to get one person every day for 500 days right just focus on that that's your goal every day i'm going to get one person what's the value you create is it worth 10 bucks you know a month for that person what is it that uh, they're getting from it because it can't just be oh you get to listen to my music because that's free people can go on spotify and youtube and find entertainment for free you got to give them something else so we got to be just as creative and i tell my artists this all the time in your marketing and just as creative in your offerings as patreon kickstarter indiegogo whatever as you are with your music you know you think about the whole creating an album improvising, whatever, there's so much creativity, you, so much creativity in terms of creating um, different projects and different musical ideas. You have to apply that same thing to the business side and the marketing and the strategy and all of that. So hopefully that helps. It's definitely a viable platform. Um, I do a private virtual studio so that um, is already set up. So I haven't really gone down the Patreon route, but um, I do a private virtual studio where students come in and they can get videos from me every week that don't go on YouTube. They're totally private. There's over 200 videos in there now. So um, that's what I do, but that doesn't mean that's right for you. Um, but yeah. yeah, that video came out saying Facebook was canceling music, but they're not really canceling music. Uh, they were just putting back out there their terms of service and that um, they're not going to be responsible they're just going to block music that's not allowed. So it, it doesn't really mean that people are going to not be able to play music on Facebook anymore. They clarified it. There's a blog, there's a blog or entry on their, um, 
I don't know what blog it is on Facebook, where they clarified. And in the video I posted on YouTube, I go through it and there's a screenshot of that actual clarification. So uh, go and check that out. Facebook is not canceling music. Um, but 20 bucks could be enough for a gig, Anthony, if that's all that it's worth, you know? It might, if, and if that's not what it's worth to you, then you gotta learn how to say no. Because um, yes, it's not enough, but on, at the same token, maybe you really love that music and you would do it for free. You know, I've flown across the country to play a gig that didn't pay anything because I wanted to do it. I lost hundreds of dollars, but I wanted to do it. So you have to make that decision for yourself. Oh, this is a different story. Now he's saying he was supposed to pay me 200, but, but he lied because there was not enough people. But you have to, you have to control that yourself. Unfortunately, you got to uh, say no to people. How do you approach teaching improv to someone who has never studied jazz? I think the essential skill there that goes before jazz is learning music by ear. So I try to get them to get off the page, number one, uh, and start learning songs by ear. Learning if, it's, if I just literally practice with them and show them how to learn something by ear, play them chord changes, learn the chord changes by ear, because that's the biggest hurdle is that they want to look at the music and they want to learn it that way. But in jazz music, in lots of different musics, like it's an aural music, you have to use your ears, not your eyes, to really play at a high level. So that's somewhere I go right away with someone who's never studied jazz, especially if they're a person that's studied classical music already, because that's the biggest hurdle is that they want to read the music. And so we got to get them off the page, one. Two, starting to um, develop the feel, like even like vocabulary is important, but I think it's more important uh, to develop the feel for the eighth note so that they can play in the style and the articulation and all of that. Um, so I think that um, I send people to some transcriptions that are relatively easy, I guess. I mean, if, a lot of times these people that never have played jazz but play the horn already can actually play pretty well. So I try to get them into like Miles Davis, so what, that solo is a good one. Curtis on Blue Train without the fast part. Uh, just different things like that. Those are some thoughts, DJ. Get them off the page, get them learning music by ear, and uh, that's a good first step. Playing transcriptions as, playing transcriptions as etudes, jazz etudes, playing along, trying to match, because getting the style is the first thing, you know? And then go to vocabulary and transcribing on their own, because they're not gonna be able to do it if they don't have the context, right? We're trying to create that context so they can learn it more on their own. He's an amazing drummer, and he's gonna release some music this summer. Always has great videos. He's released on YouTube, great vlog. Um, Brian's amazing, love Brian, miss playing with you, Brian. Uh, I'm not gonna answer this question, but uh, miss you, man. Hope we get to play together soon. Really hope so. Hope you're doing well, hope you're feeling better. I saw everything that went on this summer. Uh, thank you, thank you for being a, a voice. If, you, if you're not following Brian, you should follow him. He's doing a lot of really great stuff, a lot of, for, um, Spreading awareness and uh, awareness of, I didn't finish my sentence, spreading awareness that he just did a big concert I saw for uh, Eric Garner Day over on um, Facebook, or I'm sorry, on Facebook. I saw it on Instagram, but he was doing um, a bunch of concerts trying to spread awareness and, and musically and protest. So keep go check out Brian because he's doing important work. That's what I'm trying to say. Please, please go track Brian Carter. His recommendations about chop care. So for me, um, chop care means warming up and warming down, basically. Um, making sure to like be really very um, 
careful, right? Because we got to build up endurance slowly. We got to not overwork. We have to, um, I don't like any of those things. I know some people use like stuff that they put on their face. I don't, and I don't really, I don't really like it. I don't like putting stuff on my chops, um, like the Robinson's Remedies or the Chop Saver stuff. I, I don't like any of that stuff. Just warm up. Don't be an idiot when you play. I mean, don't play super loud and blasting all the time and all of that kind of thing. Like, just be careful. And if you do have a hard gig, you got to um, warm down afterwards and then practice in opposites. This is something that's been super beneficial for me for a long time. Practicing in opposites, that is. That means so if I play a hard gig one night and the, the next day I'm going to practice like super soft and try to be sensitive and that kind of stuff. So that's how you take care of your chops, you know, playing a little bit of time when you get tired, take a break, man. Uh, if you just pound yourself over and over and over and over and over, it's never, it's going to just lead to uh, a descending chops. Um, and, the, and the other thing is to rely on your air, not on your face, right? So you got to rely on the airstream. You got to rely on the air to do the work because uh, I've met a lot of players that get very physical here very worried about this and this on their chops and they end up uh, injuring themselves and um, it's no good man it's no good you got to make sure that um, you take care of yourself and that comes from releasing tension not having tension there's so many problems with tension players like holding it all in and like putting it here and like squeezing and all of this it's like that's why I was saying earlier about the airstream like it's like a pendulum and then you got to take it easy. Really just be careful, man. Really be careful. Do you have any advice using BandLab or other things like it to collaborate? Um, hmm. That's a good question. I've never used BandLab. I've used Sound uh, SoundLab. Is that what it's called? SoundTrap. SoundTrap. Um, but you can, do, um, you can do a collaboration with anything. You know, I've done some... Uh, using Logic and GarageBand and just sending people files and they assemble them or using Soundtrap was really good. That's Spotify's version of this like collaboration software. Um, but for any of it, the most important thing is to be very much um, prepared ahead of time to know what you're going to play and or know what needs to happen in order for the collaboration to move forward. Otherwise, it'll end up getting just kind of bogged down, I think. So uh, make sure that you plan ahead. And if you're the arranger, uh, make sure that you are going ahead to um, be really specific with what you want, and that way you can collaborate more easily. Like sometimes when we get in this idea of like a collaboration and it's open-ended and everybody's going to like offer their opinions, like most of the time you need to like give some direction. Make sure you can be as specific as possible. Bring that vision to life. Let the musicians bring your vision to life letting, or rather than asking the musicians to create your vision if that makes sense if you're doing a collaboration like you're just like i need this to be emotion say this emotion and they can figure out what that means but you need to direct them uh we're like man i don't know like what do you feel like just like play what you feel or whatever it's really annoying as a musician like a session musician because you're like what do you want and we have to figure out what you want right so when you're doing any of these collaborations whether it's in person or on soundtrap or whatever else uh make sure you're really on top of that invest in a good microphone if you can uh, or at least a microphone that's functional it gets the job done bone exercises for double bass well um jj johnson's a great person to transcribe if you want to um be great at, at playing some really great melodic vocabulary so i would recommend that uh schools for studying jazz composition master's degree uh unt 
is great. Um, anywhere with a great composer in residence, you know, Manhattan School of Music has got Jim McNeely. I'm not sure exactly what who is teaching arranging at every school, honestly, but just find a great teacher that you can learn from. Bill Dobbins is great at Eastman. And yeah, thanks for being here this week. Hope uh, you enjoyed the Q&A and uh, we'll be back next Friday, every Friday, 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time with our Ask Nick live stream. So thanks and uh, we'll see you next time.